Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when parents are expecting a baby, one of the most important decisions they make is what name to give their child. Sometimes it's an easy decision and sometimes it's a harder decision. But eventually you have to make that decision. You, you need to settle on a name. But even though you need to choose a name, at the end of the day, the actual name you choose isn't all that important. You might choose it because you like the sound of it. You might choose it because it's the name of someone in your family or maybe of someone you admire. You might choose it because it's the only name you can agree on. Or you might choose it because of what it means. But, but even if that's true, even if you choose that name because of it's, it's meaning. For, for most people, the meaning isn't going to be important. It's irrelevant. The actual name of your child doesn't really matter. All that matters is that he or she has a name. But it's very different, congregation, when it comes to God's name for his son. Whenever God names someone in the Bible, that name matters. But the name that matters most is the name that God chose for His Son. And children in church, do you know what that name was? It's Jesus, isn't it? That's the name God gave His Son. That's the name He wanted Him to be called it wasn't Mary or Joseph who gave him that name. It was God. We know that because the Bible tells us in Matthew 1 and Luke 1 that, that both of them on different occasions were, were told by an angel. And an angel is a messenger from God. They were told by an angel to call that child who was to be born of Mary and who was also the Son of God, Jesus. God named his son Jesus. And that name, beloved, matters. It matters very much. The question is, does it matter to you? Does it matter to me? Does it matter to us as a church? I know it's easy to say yes because we know that's the right answer. But what impact does this name, what, what impact does God's name for his son, the name Jesus, really make on your life and on my life and on our life as a church? Don't we have to confess that too easily and too often it doesn't matter as much as it should? Maybe for some of you it doesn't really matter at all. You don't see what this name Jesus or Savior, that's what the name means. You don't see what that name has to do with you. You don't think you need any saving, perhaps, or, or maybe you just don't want saving. Sin is too good. Perhaps, perhaps, by the grace of God, this name Jesus does matter to you. But, but still, so often, you, you struggle to rely on him entirely for salvation. Still, so often, you, you find yourself looking to other things. Still, so often you, you find yourself prone to trust in something or someone else instead or alongside of Jesus Christ. Still, so often you find yourself hesitant and slow 
to be witnesses of him in our nation, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. Why? Isn't it perhaps because the name Jesus, the name God gave his son, doesn't matter to us as much as it should. That's why, that's why the, the Bible's teaching about the name Jesus, also summarized for us in Lord's Day 11 of the Catechism, is so helpful and so valuable, even if it seems so obvious. We know it. But it's so helpful and so valuable. And I pray it will be so tonight. With God's help, we focusing also on the passage we read, Acts 4 our, and 3, 3 and 4. Our theme tonight is Jesus, God's name for his son. And first we'll see that this name reveals his saving power. And secondly, this name requires our exclusive devotion to him or our exclusive dependence on him. So what's so special about this name that God gave his son? What what makes it matter? Well, in the first place, it matters because it reveals his saving power. When question 29 of Lord's Day 11 asks, why is the son of God called Jesus, that is a savior, the first part of the answer is this, because he saves us and delivers us from our sins. In, In other words, God didn't give his son the name Jesus just because he liked it or because it was popular and just by the way, it actually was. Jesus was a common name in the days of that when Jesus was actually born. But, but that's not why God chose that name. The reason God called his son Jesus was because it reveals his son's saving power. And a saving power that, that in the first place is so wonderful. Think about what, what a wonderful saving power that name reveals. Of itself, the name Jesus simply means Savior or more specifically, the Lord saves. But the Catechism rightly tells us that the name of Jesus was given to the Son of God not just because he saves, but because he saves us and delivers us from our sins. That's why God called his Son Jesus. And the Catechism isn't making this up. It's not dreaming it up. Children, when the angel came to Joseph in, in, a, in a dream in Matthew 1, telling him not to be afraid to take Mary to himself as wife, he, he told Joseph that they, they, had to be, they, they had to call Mary's son Jesus. But he didn't just say what they had to call him. He also told them why. Do you remember why? Why was his name to be Jesus. For he shall save his people, the angel said, from their sins. That's the kind of saving power the name Jesus reveals. That's wonderful power. You see, congregation, that's the kind of power that you and I need. Because all of us have sinned. You know that. You maybe don't want to admit it. But deep down, you know that. You have sinned. I have sinned. We all have sinned. And not just once, but over and over and over again. And sinning congregation, sinning is not just making a mistake. 
When we sin, we are committing high treason against the sovereign, the almighty Lord of heaven and earth, the Lord of our lives. And this Lord, he doesn't just turn a blind eye. He cannot because he's holy and just. And he will judge righteously and he's told us what that judgment will look like. Everlasting punishment of body and soul in hell. That's what every single one of us here this evening deserves because we all have sinned. And even worse, we cannot do anything about it. We cannot save ourselves. We are like the man that we read about in Acts 3. What was wrong with that that man in Acts 3? The, The man who was laying at the gate of the temple. We're told that he was lame. He couldn't walk. He was crippled from birth. He was completely helpless, impotent. That's what we're like spiritually. Even even worse, or to put it another way, as Paul describes us in Ephesians, as, as actually dead in our trespasses and sins. We're conceived and born in sin. And we cannot rid ourselves of sin. We cannot rescue ourselves from our sins. We cannot save ourselves. Not even a tiny little bit. That's true before conversion, and it's true after conversion still too. Because even after conversion, sin still dwells in us, and you can't save yourself from it. You know that, don't you, dear believer? Oh, how it it frustrates you, how it drags you down at times, how you sometimes feel your wretchedness, and you, and, you, and you cry that anguished cry that Paul utters in Romans 7, it, that, that cry that it wells up in your own heart, who shall deliver me from this body of death? You can't. But there is someone who can. Son of God. He is called Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. And so you can answer, dear believer, you can answer that own, your own anguished cry just like Paul answered his. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Oh, what a precious, wonderful name the name of Jesus is. The name that God gave his son. Yes, and you can also go to him. You can go to him with that sin, that remaining sin, dear believer, that you struggle with. And you can say, here, Lord, I can't save myself. I've done this. Save me. And also, if you are not here, if you are here not a believer, you can go with, with your sins, with your deadness, your impotence, your weakness. And you can go to him and Lord, say, Lord, save me. Jesus, Son of God, save me. Because this name reveals his saving power, a power that deals with, that rescues us from our greatest problem. The problem is not poverty. The problem is not sickness. The problem is not our sense of self-worth. Our greatest, our deepest problem is our sins. Those rebellious acts of treason that we with our rebellious hearts have committed against the most high majesty of God. That's what God's Son saves us from. His name, Jesus, tells us so. Yes, beloved, this name matters. It matters far more than silver and gold. The name Jesus reveals to us, you see, the saving power of the Son of God. 
And there is no one here tonight. There's no one perhaps listening online who does not need that power. There is no one here tonight who does not sin. There is no one here who does not need a savior from sin. And so God's great, wonderful revelation with his name for his son is this. There is a savior. He is called Jesus. And he saves us and delivers us from our sins. Every single one of them. If you are here tonight and you are not yet saved from your sins, and I urge you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to put your faith in him, trust in him, and don't take it from me. Don't take it as me saying it in my own name. I'm saying it in the name of Jesus Christ. Trust in him, take hold of him, and you shall be saved. His name is Jesus Oh, but you say, can I really be sure of that? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. You see, the name Jesus reveals his saving power, and that, that saving power is not just wonderful, it's also effectual. What that means is, is he, sim- he not simply can save from sin, he actually does save from sin. He actually does save all who look to him, all who come to him, all who take hold of him, all who cry out to him in faith from their sins, even that crying out, even that coming to him is his work already. His saving power is effectual. That's the whole point, isn't it, with the healing of the lame man in Acts 3? You remember what happened, children? Peter and and John, they're going up to the temple. It's about three o'clock in the afternoon. They're going up to the temple to pray. And just as they're about to enter the temple at this beautiful gate, a gate that was they say about 60, 60 feet wide, big, huge gate. There's a lame man laying there and he, he begs them for some money. And so Peter and John, they, they stop and they, they, they look at this man and they, Peter says to him, look at us. And so he does and with the hope, no doubt, that they'll give him some money. But Peter doesn't give him money, does he? Instead, he says something very disappointing at first. No doubt to that man. Imagine the disappointment when he said, Peter said, silver and gold have I none. Oh. And then he says something puzzling. But such as I have, give I thee. Now the man is wondering what in the world does he have to give me? And then Peter says this, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then Peter takes him by by the right hand and and he lifts him up. Imagine that. We learn learn later in in Acts 4 that this man was over 40 years old when this happened and and he was a cripple from, from birth, from his mother's womb. He had never learned to walk. His feet and his ankles would have had no strength. And yet suddenly they're made strong and he jumps up and he stands and he walks into the temple as if he had always walked. He even leaps around, the text says, praising God. What a miracle. Imagine if if that took place here. Just imagine there had been a man laying, laying just outside there as you were coming into church. You had seen him every Sunday. For years he had been here, as long as this church has been in existence. 
And then as we're having our service, imagine he, he comes in leaping and, and praising God. Imagine he was doing that right in the middle of prayer when we were praying. That's, that's why the people were there in the temple they, to pray. And, and they stop their praying. They, they hear this commotion. They look around. What's going on? And they see this man, the man that, that had been laying at the, at the gate for so many years, and they can't believe their eyes. And so they come running to this man, and he, he, he's holding on to Peter and John, and, and they're wondering, what in the world is going on? And Peter tells them, he tells them, what? Well, he tells them it's not they. It's not they who healed the man. It's the crucified and risen Jesus. Look at verse 16. Acts 3, verse 16. And his name, referring here to Jesus, because the name here refers to the person and to his power. His name through faith in his name has made this man strong, whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by or comes through him, through Christ, has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. It was Jesus who made this lame man whole. You see what it's saying? His power is effectual. How wonderful that is. But then what does Peter do? Does he preach a health and wealth gospel? Does he say, see, this name, this Jesus, he'll save you from sickness too. Does he tell them that when they get sick, they just need to trust in Jesus and, and they'll get better? No. He tells them in verse 19, Repent and be converted. That what? That your sins may be blotted out. And he tells them in verse 26, Unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. You see what he's saying? He's saying that Jesus' power in the healing of this man from his physical problem isn't the point. It's the picture. The picture that points to his far greater power in saving you from a far greater problem. Your sins. The healing of the lame man shows that Jesus' power in saving from sin is effectual. It's not just that he can or that he might save his people from their sins. It's that he does. It's that he actually does save from their sins all who by his grace turn, alone, grace turn to him alone in faith for that salvation. That's why he's called Jesus. Doesn't that make his name so precious to you? Doesn't that encourage you to go to him with all of your sins? Every single one of them. God's name for his son, this name Jesus, it matters. It tells you that he saves. He actually does. He saves from sin. It doesn't matter what kind of a sinner you are. It doesn't matter how much you have sinned. It doesn't matter how grossly you have sinned. It doesn't matter how long you have sinned. It doesn't matter whether, whether you're a young sinner or whether you're an old sinner. The Son of God is called Jesus. Older ones, young people, children. He's called Jesus. That is a Savior. Because He will save you 
from your sins. All you who put your faith and your hope in him. He will save you. He saves you from the guilt of them. He saves you from the punishment of them. He saves you from the power of them. He will save you. He will save you one day from the presence of them altogether. And one day when he returns, he will save you from all the consequences of them, including sickness. Oh, then let's rely on him entirely. Let's trust in him alone. And let's diligently, let's be zealous to look for ways to tell others about him too. Oh, how God's name for his son should matter to every one of us. Does it? Does it? Be honest. Does the name Jesus matter to you, young people? Do you really care about this name? If you do, shouldn't that show? Shouldn't that show in what you do on Friday nights and on Tuesday nights and on every other night? Does the name Jesus matter to you, parents? If it does, then shouldn't it show? Shouldn't it show in how you raise your children? Shouldn't it show in how you treat your spouse? Shouldn't it show in what you watch or refuse to watch? Does God's name for his son matter to us as much as it should? If it does, if it does, then shouldn't we stop covering up our sins? Shouldn't we stop trying to silence our conscience? Shouldn't we instead be going to the Savior, confessing and forsaking and repenting of our sins? After all, he's called Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. God's name for his son, that name Jesus, it reveals his saving power that should lead us to him, that should draw us to him. And yet by nature... By nature, we can be so slow to go to him. We tend to look to ourselves or or to other things or to other people for salvation instead of him or in addition to him. This brings us now to to our second point. The name Jesus not only reveals his saving power, it also reveals or requires rather our exclusive devotion to him, our exclusive dependence on him. The second part of the answer to question 29 is, as well as question 30, really makes us clear. Question 29 again asks, why is the Son of God called Jesus? That is, a Savior. And the answer is, not only because He saves us and delivers us from our sins, but also, likewise, because we ought not to seek, neither can find salvation in any other. In other words, God's name for His Son The name Jesus requires our exclusive devotion to him, our exclusive dependence on him. And that requirement, congregation, is non-negotiable. Because the name, the, the, the salvation that his name reveals, the salvation that we need is found only in him. This is what Peter declares so boldly and clearly. In Acts 4, verses 10 to 12, doesn't he? And just by the way, the, the other evidence of Christ's saving power is not just, not just in the layman, it's also in Peter. It's also in Peter. He goes from being a Christ denier to a Christ proclaimer, no matter what the cost. 
to go back to the point here, Acts 4, verses 10 to 12, Peter is, is defending himself and John here before the religious leaders for their healing of the lame man. And actually, he's not really defending himself. He's, he's preaching the gospel. He's on the offensive. Listen to what he says in verses 10 to 12. He says, Be it known unto you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him, does this man stand here before you whole? So he's making the same point he made earlier, right? In chapter 3, verse 16. His point is Jesus saves. Look at this man. He saves. He saved this man from his 40-year-long physical disability. And that means he can save and he will save people from their lifelong sin problem. But then he goes on and he, he makes clear that Jesus alone saves. He says in verses 11 and 12, This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. He's quoting here from Psalm 118. And he's applying it to these religious leaders. He's saying, you are the builders. You are the builders who are rejecting Jesus. But he has become, you, you may reject him, but it doesn't matter. He has become the chief cornerstone. He is the one who is absolutely essential for the salvation that you need. And what's more, he says in verse 12, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. In other words, Jesus is not only a savior from sin. He's the savior from sin. He's the only savior. And so his name, Jesus, doesn't just reveal his saving power. It requires our exclusive devotion to him, our exclusive dependence on him. And that requirement is non-negotiable. And it's also discerning. Or you could say it's also uncovering. You see, it's easy to say you believe in Jesus Christ and at the same time really be looking for salvation in someone or something else. And the Catechism recognizes this in question 30 when it asks that question, do such then believe in Jesus, the only Savior, who seek their salvation and welfare of saints of themselves or anywhere else? And the biblical answer it gives is very clear. They do not. For though they boast of him in words, yet in deeds they deny Jesus, the only deliverer and savior. This is one of the questions in the Catechism congregation that reminds us of when it was written. It was written in a Roman Catholic context when, where people prayed to saints and relied on things like indulgences and, and good works to help them to earn their salvation. But beloved, devotion to and dependence on something or someone other or in addition to Jesus Christ for salvation is not just a Roman Catholic problem. It's a human problem. It was the problem of the religious leaders to whom Peter was speaking in Acts 4. They thought that by keeping the religious laws and the man-made additions to those laws, they could be saved. And so they rejected Jesus outright. But the problem, the problem wasn't just outside the New Testament church. It showed up in the church too. It showed up in the Galatian church. The Galatians were being tempted to, to rely on something in addition to Jesus Christ for salvation. They were being tempted to rely on their works. They were, be te tempted, they were being tempted to rely on Jewish laws, laws requiring, like the ones requiring circumcision or the keeping of certain Jewish feast days. 
And Paul, he comes at that very strong. And in Galatians 5, verses 1 through 4, he says this, Stand fast, he's warning them, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. The problem, the point is, the problem of seeking our salvation and welfare in something or someone else instead of or in addition to Jesus Christ can be a problem inside the church. And that's why we must ask ourselves, who, who or what are we trusting in for our salvation? Maybe you would say you believe in Jesus Christ. What do our lives show? Who or what are we really depending on? We must never think, congregation, that just because we're reformed, we don't have this problem. It's not a church problem. It's not a... It's a heart problem. And so really this question is very personal. It's a question about you. Who or what are you trusting in? Where are you looking for salvation? It may be, maybe you're not looking for salvation, at least not true salvation, salvation from your sins at all. All you're looking for is a good time while you can have it. So you're looking to your money or to your possessions. Or maybe you're looking to your spouse or, or to your kids. Maybe you're looking to your job. Maybe you're looking to parties and alcohol and sleeping around. But it may be you're here and you are truly seeking salvation. But where are you seeking it? Where are you seeking it? It might not be Roman Catholic saints, but maybe, maybe it's your religious heritage, your godly parents. Maybe it's your baptism. Maybe it's your public confession of faith. Maybe it's your own religious experiences. Or maybe it's a certain kind of conversion. Maybe it's your outwardly godly life. Maybe it's your own doctrinal knowledge and understanding. Maybe it's your own faith. Maybe it's your own work for the church. The possibilities are endless. Maybe it's, well, you fill in the blank. Where are you seeking your salvation? Congregation, God's name for his son requires our exclusive devotion to and dependence on him. Because he is the only place you can find salvation. He is the only one who can save. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That means, that requires our exclusive devotion to him. Our exclusive dependence on him for salvation. That's a very discerning, a very uncovering requirement even for the true believer. One believer once confessed, I was born full of myself. 
And every day needs to be emptied and filled with Christ. Can you identify with that? I was born full of myself. And every day needs to be emptied and filled with Christ. We must constantly be brought to an end of ourselves so that we seek all our salvation only in Christ, in Him alone. Whatever you might say about Jesus, to seek salvation anywhere or in anyone besides Him alone is to deny Him, the only Deliverer and Savior. God's name for His Son requires our exclusive devotion to Him. That's a non-negotiable requirement. It's a discerning and an uncovering requirement. But it's also, beloved, and this is where I want to end, it's also such an encouraging requirement. You see, what does it mean? If, if it means that we are, if Jesus' name, the name Jesus means that we must seek salvation in His Son, Jesus Christ alone, then it means it, 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 it's confirming to us that He is a complete Savior, that He is an all-sufficient Savior. In the second half of the Catechism answer in, in question 30, speaks about that. It says, For one of these two things must be true, that either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or that they who by a true faith receive the Savior must find all things in Him necessary to their salvation. The point of the Catechism answer is not to question whether Jesus is a complete Savior. The point is to confirm that He is. He saves completely. Everyone who receives Him in true faith, everyone who puts their trust and their hope in Him alone for salvation because He is the chief cornerstone. God has set Him there. And so we don't need anything or anyone else. We can rest on Him. That's good news for spiritual cripples. He is sufficient. He is all sufficient for our salvation. Oh, then let us be exclusively devoted to Him. Let us be exclusively dependent on Him, not on anything in ourselves, forsaking every other thing, every, everything and everyone else. And let's rely on Him alone for all our salvation. Yes, let us also proclaim Him alone. Proclaim Him boldly like Peter did in the power of the Holy Spirit to those around us, to the community around us, to the people we live with and we work with and, and we interact with. Because He is the only Savior. Let's do so even, even if like Peter and John and the disciples, even if it means we face persecution. Oh, may God grant us such boldness, congregation. God's name, God's name for His Son is Jesus. What a name. What a Savior. How much does that name matter to you. Amen.